0: Is this what ChatGPT must feel like? Quote, words are everywhere, inside me, outside me. Well, well, a minute ago I had no thickness. I hear them, no need to hear them, no need of a head. Impossible to stop them, impossible to stop. I'm in words, made of words, others' words, what others? The place too, the air, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, all words, the whole world is here with me. I'm the air, the walls, the walled in one. Everything yields, opens, ebbs, flows like flakes. I'm all these flakes, meeting, mingling, falling asunder. Wherever I go, I find me, leave me, go towards me, come from me, nothing ever but me, a particle of me retrieved, lost, gone astray. I'm all these words, all these strangers, this dust of words with no ground for their settling, no sky for their dispersing. Coming together to say, fleeing one another to say, that I am they, all of them, those that merge, those that part, those that never meet, and nothing else, yes. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of June's book, the trilogy, Malloy Malone Dies, The Unnameable by Samuel Beckett, translated from the French by the author and Patrick Bowles and published in 1951. So, each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook.com at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of the trilogy, Molloy, Malone Dies, The Unnameable, from page 209, which says, quote, I fear I may have fallen asleep again. Now there's quite a bit of adult language used in the novel but I've removed any bad language from the podcast. There are themes of a sexual nature throughout the work and some violence although not explicit. So just a quick recap from where we've left off. Malone is telling the story of the Lamberts. Now he finds an exercise book to continue his account which he harpoons. The Lamberts bury a mule and Sappho thinks that death is quote vivifying, enlivening. Now Sapo, remember, is this kind of alter ego of Malone. Sapo thinks about how each animal, hens and rabbits, approach death in different ways. Quote, rabbits die before they're killed. He also recalls talking to a man called Jackson about conation, which is the mental faculty of purpose, desire, or will to perform an action volition if you will. Malone imagines himself dead and contemplates dying. It's interesting this idea of memory. Malone has difficulty recounting things from his past. When describing a great coat, quote, it might safely be wagered that this coat, when new, was of a fine plain green colour, what you might call cab green, for there used to be cabs and carriages rattling through the town with panels of a handsome bottle green. I must have seen them myself and even driven in them. He recalls a hat and tries to remember how it was attached to his head, very reminiscent of Malloy's lace attached hat, quote, and though the edges of the split brim close on the brow like the jaws of a trap, nevertheless the hat is attached by a string for safety to the topmost button of the coat because never mind. His sentence trails off as if forgetting or he's in some confusion. He even dislikes the name Sapo and starts calling this character Mac-Man. There's a definite feeling of melancholy and death in the prose. Quotes, here there are no trees and perhaps no longer the first of the year, barely green, old leaves that have known the long joys of summer and now are good for nothing but to lie rotting in a heap now that men and beasts have no more need of shade on the contrary nor birds of nests to lay and hatch out in and trees must blacken even where no heart beats though it appears that some stay green forever for some obscure reason he thinks of himself as quote an old fetus whore and impotent and he imagines himself after he has gone as sand, as a plaything. Quote, "'All will grow dark again, "'and it is without excessive sorrow "'that I see us again as we are, "'namely to be removed grain by grain "'until the hand, wearied, begins to play, "'scooping us up and letting us trickle back "'into the same place, dreamily as the saying is.'" It's pretty gloomy stuff, but incredibly poetic. He thinks he'll die in a few days. Quote, then it will be all over with the Murphys, Merciers, Molloys, Morans, and Malones, unless it goes on beyond the grave. But sufficient unto the day, let us first defund, then we'll see. How many have I killed, hitting them on the head or setting fire to them? Offhand, I can only think of four, all unknowns. I never knew anyone. A sudden wish. I have a sudden wish to see, as sometimes in the old days, something. Anything, no matter what. Something I could not have imagined. There was the old butler too in London, I think. There's London again. I cut his throat with his razor. That makes five. So, he's a murderer. Or is this the implied author now speaking, talking of how his characters are now dead, now that they've been written? Or in the case of the butler physically cut out of the text with a scalpel? Who knows? I mean, Sapperscat has in effect been murdered. He is now McMahon. I don't trust this narrator, so why would I trust his account that he's a murderer? But let's imagine this is a real account by Malone, who is revealed as a murderer. Now, Malone tells how McMahon struggles to turn around in bed, which is as big as a quote pallet. It reminds me of MacMan in the grave. He certainly seems quite close to death. Structurally, the paragraph breaks are now delineating MacMan and Malone's narratives. Both characters seem very preoccupied with death, and there is a real mirroring between Malloy and Moran. Where does one character begin and the other end? There's that circularity that I mentioned in the previous podcast. Now, MacMan has a love of objects in a similar vein to Malloy and his sucking stones. Quote I loved to finger and caress the hard shapely objects that were there in my deep pockets. It was my way of talking to them and reassuring them and I loved to fall asleep holding in my hand a stone, a horse chestnut or a cone and I would be still holding it when I woke. My fingers closed over it in spite of sleep which makes a rag of the body so that it may rest and those of which I wearied or which were ousted by new loves I threw away. That is to say I cast round for a place to lay them where they would be at peace forever and no one ever find them short of an extraordinary hazard and such places are few and far between and I laid them there or I buried them or threw them into the sea with all my strength as far as possible from the land. Those I knew for certain would not float even briefly but many a wooden friend too I have sent to the bottom weighted with a stone until I realized it was wrong of me for when the string is rotted, they will rise to the surface. In this way, I dispose of things I love, but can no longer keep because of new loves. And often I miss them, but I had hidden them so well that even I could never find them again. That's the style, as if I still had time to kill. Now, what are we but just possessions and memories? Did you read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovitch? Do you remember his obsession with possessions? It's very resonant with this book, written just four years apart, also describing a man in an institution. Now, Malone thinks about his inventory of objects that he was going to write before he dies. Quote, I shall not finish this inventory. A little bird tells me so. A paraclete, perhaps. Cetaciously named. Be it so. A club in any case. I can't help it. I must state the facts without trying to understand. To the end. There are moments when I feel I've been here always, perhaps even was born here, then it passes. That would explain many things, or that I have come back after a long absence, but I have done with feeling and hypotheses. This club is mine, and that is all about it. It is stained with blood, but insufficiently, insufficiently. I've defended myself ill, but I have defended myself. That is what I tell myself sometimes. One boot, originally yellow, I forget for which foot. The other, its fellow, has gone. They took it away at the beginning before they realised I should never walk again. And they left the other in the hope I would be saddened seeing it there without its fellow. Men are like that. Or perhaps it is on top of the cupboard. I've looked for it everywhere with my stick, but I never thought of the top of the cupboard till now. And as I shall never look for it anymore or for anything else, either on top of the cupboard or anywhere else, it is no longer mine. For only those things are mine, the whereabouts of which I know well enough to be able to lay hold of them, if necessary. That is the definition I have adopted to define my possessions. For otherwise, there would be no end to it. But in any case, there will be no end to it. There is a reference to a crutch and bicycle bell in his possessions, linking him possibly to the character Malloy. Quote, "I should have liked to speak of the cap of my bicycle bell and my half crutch, the top half. You'd think it was a baby's crutch, but I can still do so. What is there to prevent me? I don't know. I can't. Surely this is Malloy. They are all aspects of the same character: Malloy, Malone, Moran, McMahon. What do you think now, just as Malloy has his things taken from him, so does McMahon by Mole, his carer at the hostel. Another mirroring of the previous book, where Luce looks after Molloy. He soon starts a relationship with Mole. He contemplates love with her in old age. They end up writing letters to each other and one day a message is brought to him that Mole, his lover, has died. This chap, Lemuel, who has replaced her, says, quote, You are my charge from now on, Lemuel seems to self-flagellate, causing himself wounds. Quote, one day, rolling up the leg of his trousers, he showed McMahon his shin covered with bruises, scars and abrasions. Maybe there's another reason, what do you think? Anyway, Malloy stops writing to hear an aeroplane fly overhead at around 200 miles an hour, and then thinks, quote, it's a good speed for the present day. I am with it in spirit, naturally. All the things I was always with in spirit, in body, no, not such a fool. Here is the programme anyhow, the end of the programme. Here Malone considers the body and spirit as two specific entities, not perhaps as Malloy did. He does speak to his wits though and often refers to them as mem, which I'm thinking of maybe memory. Correct me if you got a different impression from reading the novel. He continues discussing MacMan and his life on the page and the programme that he put before us, imagining him as a character in a play. And we do, in a sense, get this kind of play within a play feel to the MacMan episode, as if he is revealing a part of Malloy that may have remained hidden. Of the programme, remember, Malone thinks, quote, it does not depend on me, my lead is not inexhaustible, nor my exercise book, nor MacMan, nor myself, in spite of appearances. That all may be wiped out at the same instant, is all I ask. Malone then describes how he is hit over the head. Quote, The visit, I felt a violent blow on the head. He had perhaps been there for some time. Malone describes the assailant as black suited and he thinks of some questions he will ask him if he ever returns. Quote, One, who are you? Two, what do you do for a living? Three, are you looking for something in particular? What else? Four, why are you so cross? Five, have I offended you? Six, Do you know anything about me? Seven, it was wrong of you to strike me. Eight, give me my stick. Nine, are you your own employer? 10, if not, who sends you? 11, put back my things where you found them. 12, why has my soup been stopped? 13, for what reason are my pots no longer emptied? 14, do you think I shall last much longer? 15, may I ask you a favor? 16, your conditions are mine. 17. Why brown boots and whence the mud? 18. You couldn't by any chance let me have the butt of a pencil? 19. Number your answers. 20. Don't go. I haven't finished. Will one page suffice? There cannot be many left. I might as well ask for a rubber while I'm about it. 21. Could you lend me an India rubber? And then we go back to Mac Malone describes how he walks in the park where he's kept and how he ripped up a photo of Mole. A rich lady called Lady Peddle offers to take Lemuel's group to some islands for an excursion. Quote, lady Peddle had organised for the benefit of Lemuel's group this outing to the islands which was going to cost her dear but she was well off and lived for doing good and bringing a little happiness into the lives of those less fortunate than herself who was all right in her head and to whom life had always smiled or as she had it herself returned her smile enlarged as in a convex mirror or a concave, I forget. There we have that memory again. Now, MacMan describes his other cellmates, quote, A youth, the Saxon, far from being any such thing, a thin one and a giant. If I was ever unsure as to whether he was not in a prison, it's pretty obvious now. Quote, Lemuel stood on the terrace, waiting for Lady Pedal to arrive. Cords tethered by the ankles, the thin one to the youth, the Saxon to the giant, and Lemuel held Macman by the arm. Of the five, it was Macman, furious at having been shut up in his cell all morning and at a loss to understand what was wanted of him. His resistance had been the most lively. And then the grammar of the novel begins to break down to lose its rules. Sentences lose their full stops. Lemuel kills two friends of Lady Pedal who are helping her. They have very upper-class English-sounding names, Morris and Ernest. Is this Malone's fantasy character striking at the heart of the English class system, perhaps? Quote, Two decent, quiet, harmless men, brothers-in-law, into the bargain. There are billions of such brutes. Mac huge head He's put his hat on again. The voice of lady Peddle calling. She appeared joyous. Come along, she cried. All of you, before the tea gets cold. But at the sight of the late sailor, she fainted, which caused her to fall. He leaves her to die, possibly of a broken hip. Now, remember that comment on charity in the last podcast. Against the charitable gesture, there is no defence. It feels as if Lemuel is raging against charity. And the book... Malone dies, ends with Lemuel leading MacMan and the other inmates away in the boat. And I feel like Malone has died and what better and more fitting way with a slowly meandering story he is telling himself as he slips away into death, or what I'm imagining is, quote, the unamiable of the next novel. Perhaps there is some retribution in the story he has told himself. Those do-gooders who have slowly taken his possessions have been metaphorically punished. What do you think? Now, impressions of finishing this second novel in the trilogy, it's humorous and bleak. Beckett really holds up a light to the realities of living and is unflinching in his honesty. It reminds me of a Pinter quote I read when I did some research on Beckett, quote, The farther he goes, the more good it does me. I don't want philosophies, tracks, dogmas, creeds, ways out, truths, answers, nothing from the bargain basement. He's the most courageous, remorseless writer going and the more he grinds my nose in the... blank. The more I am grateful to him. He's not... blank me about he's not leading me up any garden path he's not slipping me a wink he's not flogging me a remedy or a path or a revelation or a basin full of breadcrumbs he's not selling me anything I don't want to buy he doesn't give a blank whether I buy or not he hasn't got his hand over his heart well I'll buy his goods hook line and sinker because he leaves no stone unturned and no maggot lonely he brings forth a body of beauty his work is beautiful Thank you, Harold Pinter, another fine playwright. Now onto the third novel, The Unnameable. So, it seems we are being narrated to by a character in Purgatory or Hell. He says that Malone, quote, of his mortal liveliness, no trace remains. So he is dead then, confirmed. Quote, He passes before me at doubtless regular intervals unless it is I who pass before him. No, once and for all, I do not move. He passes motionless, but there will not be much on the subject of Malone from whom there is nothing further to be hoped. Personally, I do not intend to be bored. It was while watching him pass that I wondered if we cast a shadow. Impossible to say, he passes close by me, a few feet away, slowly, always in the same direction. I'm almost sure it is he. The brimless hat seems to me conclusive with his two hands he props up his jaw he passes without a word perhaps he does not see me i love that vision of malone as a skeleton propping up his jaw it's quite humorous i think this narrator is in some kind of hell quote that i am not stone death is shown by the sounds that reach me for though the silence here is almost unbroken it is not completely so I remember the first sound heard in this place. I've often heard it since, for I'm obliged to assign a beginning to my residence here, if only for the sake of clarity. Hell itself, although eternal, dates from the revolt of Lucifer. It is therefore permissible, in the light of this distant analogy, to think of myself as being here forever, but not as having been here forever." Or perhaps he's the text itself, trapped in the imprint of words and letters in this book. Discuss. We learn he is Matthew, quote, I am Matthew and I am the angel. I who came before the cross, before the sinning, came into the world, came here. But of course, he is not Matthew since he is the unnameable He is perhaps every man. He's certainly this voice, quote. There is no light here, no gray either, black is what I should have said. Nothing then but me, of which I know nothing, except that I have never uttered. And this black, of which I know nothing either, except that it is black and empty, that then is what, since I have to speak, I shall speak of, until I need speak no more." Goes on. Talking of speaking, what if I went silent? What would happen to me then? Worse than what is happening? But five, these are questions again. That is typical. I know no more questions and they keep on pouring out of my mouth. I think I know what it is. It's to prevent the discourse from coming to an end. This futile discourse, which is not credited to me and brings me not a syllable near a silence. But now I am on my guard. I shall not answer them any more. I shall not pretend any more to answer them. Perhaps I shall be obliged in order not to peter out to invent another fairy tale. Yet another, with heads, trunks, arms, legs, and all that follows, let loose in the changeless round of imperfect shadows and dubious light. Now he references a man called Basil, quote, and his gang, who seems to have come up with strange human-like ideas in this netherworld, like, for instance, time, quote, Here there are no years, what matter how long? Years is one of Basil's ideas. A short time, a long time. It's all the same. And just as the name Sapperscat was changed to MacMan, Basil is changed to Mahud. Quote, "'Decidedly, Basil is becoming important. I'll call him Mahood instead. I prefer that.' Now words are the only thing the Unnameable has any kind of power over, or seems to have any kind of power over, and he's going to use that power. Go Unnameable. You call Basil whatever you fancy. Interesting that mahud is one letter shy of manhood, a word that represents solidity, a form. Here, mahud is, I presume, some kind of spirit figure, either mentally to the unable or in reality. Initially, I thought this Basil was a Christ-like figure, quote, Basil and his gang, inexistent, invented to explain, and I forget what. Ah, yes, all lies, God and man, nature and the light of day, the heart's outpourings, and the means of understanding, all invented basely by me alone, with the help of no one, since there is no one, to put off the hour when I must speak of me. There will be no more about them. And there's that interesting memory again, I forget what. Now, when the unnamed one mentions his gang, I think immediately of disciples, perhaps. He explains how he was given a punishment chore at birth, a pensum, and that is why possibly that he is here. Quote, I was given a pensum at birth, perhaps, as a punishment for having been born, perhaps, or for no particular reason, because they dislike me, and I've forgotten what it is forgetting and the fragility of memory is quite a theme in this trilogy i love the fact that memory indistinct and fallible is contrasted with a rock solid text that can never change and is a permanent memory on the next page he says quote i quiver at the thought give you my word spoken in jest quiver and hurry on all life before me on and forget what i was saying just now something important it's gone It's very much like a play. Now there's a particularly interesting geographical passage, quote, when I took myself for Mahud, I must have been coming to the end of a world tour, perhaps not more than two or three centuries to go. My state of decay lends color to this view. Perhaps I had left my leg behind in the Pacific. Yes, no, perhaps about it. I had somewhere off the coast of Java and its jungles red with rafflesia, stinking of carrion. No, that's the Indian Ocean. What a gazetteer I am, no matter, somewhere around there. In a word, I was returning to the fold, admittedly reduced, and doubtless fated to be even more so, before I could be restored to my wife and parents, you know, my loved ones, and clasp in my arms, both of which I had succeeded in preserving, my little ones born in my absence. So the unnamable is certainly a male, He has a wife and a child. He could be the Moran character. And then he mentions having nine children. So perhaps he's the Lambert pig butcher from the previous half. But that's not the point. This unnameable seems to be every man. As if all population has coalesced into this one mind and is speaking for humanity. There's no more division between humans and the universe is one. Perhaps I'm taking that a bit far. What do you think? Certainly later on in the Unnamable, I start to think about Mahood as being maybe the thinking part of the Unnamable, and a character does come in later, Worm, that seems to be more like the bodily part, whereas perhaps the unnameable is the soul part. So maybe there's a tripartite and we've got the soul speaking here. Anyway, continuing on, he says that they were all carried off by sausage poisoning. So certainly could be Lambert the pig butcher. Nice little reference back to that horrible man a few pages later he refers to himself in the third person as him quote can it be they have abandoned me saying very well there's nothing to be done with him so it's definitely a him he also contemplated that he might be in some kind of womb giving rise to the idea that he may be about to be reborn perhaps some kind of reincarnation he tells of his current physical existence as a head in a jar without limbs placed outside a chop house a woman takes care of the narrator, though mostly because he draws in customers to her restaurant. He is literally a brain in the jar and we hear all about the difficulties of living like this. Quote, "'It is perhaps worth noting that snow alone, "'provided of course it is heavy, "'entitles me to the tarpaulin. "'No other form of filthy weather lets loose in her "'the maternal instinct in my favour. "'I have tried to make her understand, "'dashing my head angrily against the neck of the jar, "'that I should like to be shrouded more often. At the same time, I let my spittle flow over in an attempt to show my displeasure. (laughs) Poor Unnameable! I mean, how without a muscular system is he going to bang his head against the jar? Do you have any ideas? He imagines that the chop house lady has a real need for him. Quote, she needs me, her chop house, her husband, her children. If she has any and not enough, there is in her a void that I alone can fill. This poor dismembered, disembodied, maybe decapitated head in a jar. He seems to almost fall in love with a customer called Madeline or perhaps Marguerite, it does change. Quote, perhaps Marguerite has come and gone, come again and gone again without my having noticed her. Perhaps I've blazed with all my usual brilliance for hours on end, all unsuspecting. I wonder if the name Madeline is any kind of Proustian reference because I think in Proust's work, Remembrance of Things Past, it's a mandolin that he eats that crunches up all these amazing images and memories. So perhaps that's the slight reference to a Madeline, possibly? The unable's not sure his words are really his. Quote, I know their words, there was a time I didn't, as I still don't know if they're mine. So he resolves now to only speak of himself in the third person, which he does. Quote, I shall not say I again, ever again is too farcical. I shall put in its place, whenever I hear it, the third person. Maybe that theme of every man again coming in. He's speaking for everyone. He seems to now change his location. Is he perhaps in a womb or some kind of dark place? Quote, then what is this faint noise of air stealthily stirred, recalling the breath of life to those whom it corrodes? It's a bad example. But these lights that go out hissing, is it not more likely a great crackle of laughter at the sight of his terror and distress to see him flooded with light then suddenly plunged back in darkness must strike them as irresistibly funny? It doesn't sound like he's outside this chop shop anymore. It sounds like he's almost in an operating theatre of some kind. This character, the unable in a glass jar, refers to himself now as Worm. He ponders not having the ability to interact in the world I think when he takes on this word, worm, he's talking really about the physicality of the body. Quote, A man would wonder where his kingdom ended. His eyes strive to penetrate the gloom and he crave for a stick, an arm, fingers apt to grasp and then release at the right moment. A stone, stones, or for the power to utter a cry and wait, counting the seconds for it to come back to him and suffer. Certainly as having neither voice nor other missile nor limbs submissive to him bending and unbending at the word of command perhaps even regret being a man under such conditions that is to say a head abandoned to its ancient solitary resources I wonder if this is a comment on the characters generally in novels who also have no ability to physically interact in the world and they can never take a breath of silence as mentioned earlier how do you write silence in a novel He talks about his constantly seeing eye. Quote, the eye stays open. It's an eye without lids, no need for lids here when nothing happens, or so little. If he could blink, he might miss the odd sights. Remember, he's speaking in third person. If he could close it, the kind he is, he'd never open it again. Tears gush from it practically without ceasing. Why is not known, nothing is known, whether it's with rage or whether it's with grief. The fact is there, perhaps it's the voice that makes it weep with rage or some other passion or at having to see from time to time, some sight or other. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps he weeps in order not to see. Though It seems difficult to credit him with an initiative of this complexity. Poor Unnameable. I do really feel sorry for him. He also talks about the obvious differences between the eye and the ear. Quote, decidedly, this eye is hard of hearing. Noises travel, traverse walls, but... May the same be said of appearances, by no means, generally speaking. I love that clarification of the obvious. He wishes for some kind of eye-catching attraction. Quote, for here there is no face, nor anything resembling one, nothing to reflect the joy of living and succedania, nothing for it but to try something else, some simple thing, a box, a piece of wood, to come to rest before him for an instant. Once a year, once every two years, a ball, revolving one knows not how about one knows not what about him every two years every three years frequency unimportant in the early stages without stopping it needn't stop that would be better than nothing he'd hear it approaching hear it receding it would be an event he might learn to count the minutes the hours to fret be brave have patience lose patience turn his head Roll his eye, a big stone, and faithful, that would be better than nothing, pending the hearts of flesh. The unnameable seems to be slowly unraveling. Quote, I expiate vilely like a pig, dumb, uncomprehending, possessed of no utterance but theirs. They'll clap me in a dungeon, I'm in a dungeon. I've always been in a dungeon. I hear everything, every word they say. It's the only sound as if I were speaking to myself out loud. In the end, you don't know anymore a voice that never stops, where it's coming from, perhaps there are others here, with me, it's dark, very properly, it is not necessarily an oubliette, that's a dungeon, for one or one other, perhaps I have a companion in misfortune, given to talking or condemned to talk, you know, any odd thing, out loud, without ceasing. There certainly seems to be some other thing controlling him, he's always talking about them or they, I don't know whether that's some kind of religious feeling that there's this God that's keeping an eye on him. It feels like it's been written with somebody imbued with some religiosity, I think. I I don't know whether you got that as well. There's certainly a feeling that he has to atone for something. Feels like almost some kind of Catholic guilt this pensum he reflects on the master slave relationship perhaps between God and man and certainly between Moran and Yudi from Malloy if you remember that quote words have been said those it behoved to say no need to know which no means of knowing which they'll be there somewhere in the heap in the torrent not necessarily the last they have to be ratified by the proper authority that takes time he's far from here They bring him the verbatim report of the proceedings. Once in a way, he knows the words that count. It's he who chose them. In the meantime, the voice continues while the messenger goes towards the master. And while the master examines the report and while the messenger comes back with the verdict, the words continue, the wrong words, until the order arrives to stop everything or to continue everything No, superfluous, everything will continue automatically until the order arrives to stop everything. Perhaps they are somewhere there, the words that count in what has just been said, the words it behoved to say. They need not be more than a few. They say they, speaking of them, to make me think it is I who am speaking. Or I say they, speaking of God, knows what, to make me think it is not I who am speaking. Now this long interior monologue is never ending. Is the Unnamable trying to find the words that will release his soul to die? It's certainly a very tough read at the moment, pretty plotless at the moment. I feel like I'm reading the writings of a genius drunkard with such beautiful poetry and amazing use of words. There's definitely method in the madness that I'm reading. And just as I'm thinking these cliche Shakespearean thoughts, the Unnamable says, quote, If only this voice could stop, this meaningless voice which prevents you from being nothing. That was definitely Beckett saying, Yes, Roger, that's what I'm trying to get across to you. Now, he has some interesting thoughts on consciousness before the emergence of life. Quote, There is nothing for it but to wait for the end, nothing but for the end to come, and at the end all will be the same. At the end, at last, perhaps all the same as before as all that live long time when there was nothing for it, but to get to the end. Now I find the actual physical description of this disembodied head quite difficult to follow at the moment, as I said. I know it was outside the chop shop for a while, then it was covered, and now it appears to be being used for candle holders. Quote, ah, if only this voice could stop. This meaningless voice, which prevents you from being nothing, just barely prevents you from being nothing and nowhere. Just enough to keep alight this little yellow flame, feebly darting from side to side, panting as if straining to tear itself from its wick. It should never have been lit, or it should never have been fed, or it should have been put out. Put out. It should have been let go out. These words are like that wax in a candle. And I can see where the wax ends. But of course, this is probably a metaphorical candle. He is dying to be snuffed out. But where does reality stop and metaphor start in Beckett? It's intriguing and interesting. Anyway, onward. Let's talk about collective memory or memory in a text. When Worm speaks of Basil Mahud slash Mahud, I immediately saw him as a Jesus figure. It is interesting to me how the unable comments on how he believes that he's going to go on living. To me, I see this as a comment on the Permanency of collective thought and of a text and a character in a text such as Jesus in the Bible that seems to live on and on where we ordinary humans die away Listen to this, quote Mahud will never let himself be completely resorbed Worm, yes, worm will vanish utterly as if he had never been Worm, I think, is really the body and Mahud is more than the body But the irony is, of course, that both will survive in this text The Unnameable raises the interesting question of whether a sperm is life or not. He reflects on a sperm generated from a young man's wet dream. Quote, Some people are lucky, born of a wet dream and dead before morning. And it really plays to Catholic guilt and a kind of fatalistic outlook on life, which is less than rosy. In this poor disembodied voice, we hear Beckett's idea of hell. Quote, how all comes right in the end, to be sure, it's thanks to patience, thanks to time, it's thanks to the earth that revolves, that the earth revolves no more, that time ends its meal and pain comes to an end. You have only to wait without doing anything, it's no good doing anything, and without understanding, there's no help in understanding, and all comes right, nothing comes right, nothing, nothing, this will never end, this voice will never stop, I'm alone here, the first and the last. He goes on. I'm alone, immortal, I can't get born, I keep saying the same old thing, generation after generation, till I go mad and begin to scream. He feels like he's a dividing line between the world and thought, stuck in this awful limbo situation. Now, is this what life feels like? On one side, the mind, knowledge, understanding, categorization, and on the other, the world. That's what it feels like to pour brain in a jar here. Quote, perhaps that's what I feel, I feel, an outside and an inside and me in the middle. Perhaps that's what I am, the thing that divides the world in two. On the one side, the outside. On the other, the inside that can be as thin as foil. I'm neither one side nor the other. I'm in the middle. I'm the partition of two surfaces, no thickness. Perhaps that's what I feel, myself vibrating. I'm the tympanum. On the one hand, the mind. On the other, the world. I don't belong to either. He forgives himself for any sin. Quote, what have I done to God? What have they done to God? What has God done to us? Nothing, and we've done nothing to him. You can't do anything to him. He can't do anything to us. We're innocent, he's innocent. It's nobody's fault. What's nobody's fault? This state of affairs. And as I mentioned in the opening to the podcast, this disembodied voice reminds me of the conversation currently flying around about AI and consciousness, Quote, they say I seek what it is I hear, I hear them. Now it comes back to me, what it can possibly be and where it can possibly come from since all is silent here and the wall's thick and how I manage without feeling an ear on me or a head or a body or a soul, how I manage to do what? How I manage, it's not clear. Dear, dear, you say it's not clear. Something is wanting to make it clear. I'll seek, what is wanting to make everything clear? I'm always seeking something. It's tiring in the end. And it's only the beginning. How I manage under such conditions to do what I'm doing, what I am doing. I must find out what I'm doing. Tell me what you're doing and I'll ask you how it's possible. I hear, you say I hear, and I seek. It's a lie. I seek nothing, nothing anymore. No matter. Let's leave it. It's interesting that he says he doesn't have a soul. I do feel like this is really a soul character, but he he says that he's not the soul. So... There's a very interesting quote in there, quote, they say I seek what it is I hear. Isn't that how chat GPT works? It seeks and searches vast databases of human knowledge and predicts the best follow-up answer. He follows this extract with, quote, how I managed to hear and how I managed to understand, it's a lie, what would I understand with? This conversation about knowledge and experience versus understanding seems very prescient at the moment. It would appear that the unnameable being a head in a jar in a chop shop may have been just a flight of fancy. He says, quote, Now, with regard to me, it has not yet been our good fortune to establish with any degree of accuracy what I am, where I am, whether I am words among words, or silence in the midst of silence. The unnameable raises an interesting question about time, one that has puzzled physicists for generations. Why time seems to accrue. He obviously hasn't studied the block universe theory of time. Quote, why time doesn't pass, doesn't pass from you, why it piles up all about you, instant on instant, on all sides, deeper and deeper, thicker and thicker, your time, others' time, the time of the ancient dead and the dead yet unborn, why it buries you grain by grain, neither dead nor alive, with no memory of anything, no hope of anything, no knowledge of anything, no history and no prospects, buried under the seconds, saying any odd thing, your mouth full of sand. Oh, I know it's immaterial. Time is one thing, I another. But the question may be asked: Why time doesn't pass, just like that, off the record? The unable is certainly steeped in Christian ideas about the mind, soul, and body trinity that makes up man. Quote, All is silent here, and the walls thick. And how I manage without feeling an ear on me, or a head, or a body, or a soul. He goes on, equate me with him whose story this story had the brief ambition to be, ascribe to me a body, better still, arrogate to me a mind, speak of a world of my own, sometimes referred to as the inner, without choking, doubt no more, seek no more, take advantage of the brand new soul and substantiality to abandon, with the only possible abandon deep down within Talking of the Trinity, mind, body, and soul, is it possible that this narration by the unnameable is the soul speaking, as I mentioned, and that Mahud and Worm have been split out into mind, Mahud, and body, represented by Worm? It's possible. This disembodied voice really recalls to me the recollection Malloy has at the beginning of the novel of remembering walking hills and how much it is possible to recreate a lived experience with thoughts, memories, and words. Quote, will I never stop wanting a life for myself no, no, no head either anything you like but not a head in his head he doesn't go anywhere either I've tried, lash the stake blindfold, gag to the gullet you take the air under the elms in say, murmuring Shelley impervious to the shafts, yes a head but solid, solid bone and you embedded in it like a fossil in the rock perhaps there go I after all, I can't go on in any case but I must go on so I'll go on, I like that nod to the romantic poet Shelley And later he recalls the sea, quote, "'If only I could feel the place for me. "'I've tried, I'll try again. "'None was ever mine, that sea under my window, "'higher than the window and the rowboat. "'Do you remember? "'And the river and the bay. "'I knew I had memories. "'Pity they're not of me. "'And the stars and the beacons "'and the lights of the boys "'and the mountain burning. "'It was a time nothing was too good for me. "'The others benefited by it. "'They died like flies all the forest.' A roof is not indispensable, an interior. If I could be in a forest, caught in a thicket or wandering round in circles, it would be the end of this blither. I describe the leaves one by one at the moment of their growing, at the moment of their giving shade, at the moment of their falling. Those are good moments. The unnameable recounts a sad war story to highlight the quote, nature of emotion, and then we move into a section just in the closing pages where he begins to contemplate the idea of silence, as if predicting the end of his life in the novel. I am the absentee again. It's his turn again now. He who neither speaks nor listens. He who has neither body nor soul. It's something else he has. He must have something. He must be somewhere. He is made of silence. There's a pretty analysis. He's in the silence. He's the one to be sought, the one to be, the one to be spoken of, the one to speak, but he can't speak. Then I could stop. I'd be he. I'd be the silence. I'd be back in the silence. We'd be reunited. He who neither speaks nor listens is the unable referring to me, the reader, and then The novel closes on the next page. Wow. What an incredible book. Intense, funny, sad. A load of interesting tales. It's really difficult to work through the ideas in The Unnamable*. The stream of consciousness from this head is difficult to pin down. And it does go off on loads of tangents. And we have all these strange characters, Basil, renamed to Mahud, reflecting perhaps the mind and worm, perhaps reflecting the body and the unnameable, perhaps the soul, even though he denies it, that lives on fighting to carry on speaking, perhaps knowing that silence means death. What did you make of the novel? I loved the comic section with the bicycle at the beginning of the trilogy, Molai running over the dog and then trying to work out the best placement of stones in his overcoat. That was hilarious. There was lots of really interesting ideas to come out that second half the rhythmic poetic onomatopoeic writing is fantastic listen to this quote the rain pelted down on his back with the sound first of a drum but in the short time of washing as when washing his sows, gurgling and squelching the tub and he distinguished clearly and with interest the difference in noise of the rain falling on him and falling on the earth wonderful and the idea of silence in the novels is really interesting. Reading The Unnameable really makes me reflect on silence and how you can convey it in a novel or rest or peace. You can't just have blank pages, but maybe there are books where you just get that. How do you truly convey a moment of silence in a novel? I think The Unnameable wrestles with his inability to be silent. Quote, I have to speak, whatever that means. Having nothing to say, no words but the words of others, I have to speak. No one compels me to. There's no one. It's an accident, a fact. Nothing can ever exempt me from it. There's nothing, nothing to discover, nothing to recover, nothing that can lessen what remains to say. I thought it was interesting those changes from Sapperscat to McMahon in Malone Dies and Basil to Mahood. They're just labels, signifiers. That is all they are and they are free to be changed at the Will of the uh, narrator or perhaps the implied author. Usually in novels, characters' names are set in stone and I usually different letter names just to really help differentiate them, but not here. Malloy, Malone, McMahon, Mole, Moran, Mahood, Murphy. There's probably more. It's interesting the reflections on the previous two novels by the name Bull. Quote I would have liked to lose me, lose me the way I could long ago, when I still had some imagination, close my eyes and be in a wood, or on the seashore or in a town where I don't know anyone. It's night, everyone has gone home, I walk the streets, I lash into them, one after the other, it's the town of my youth. I'm looking for my mother to kill her." Now that puts a different spin on the Molai story. Carrying on, quote, if it's I who seek, what exactly it is I seek, find, lose, find again, throw away, seek again, find again, throw away again. No, I never threw anything away, never threw anything away of all the things I found, never found anything that I didn't lose, never lost anything that I mightn't as well have thrown away. If it's I who seek, find, lose, find again, lose again, seek in vain, seek no more. And that comment really reminds me of Malloy and all those sucking stones that he is looking for and trying to discover and how he had to arrange them in his pockets for the purpose of balance. The unnamed will crave some kind of arrangement job like this to occupy himself. Quote, if instead of having something to say, I had something to do with my hands or feet, some little job sorting things, for example, or simply arranging things, suppose for the sake of argument, I had the job of moving things from one place to another, then I'd know where I was and how far I had got. I thought that throughout the trilogy, we have a breakdown in the narration. In Malloy, it is clearly segmented into two main characters, Malloy and Moran. Then in Malone dies, one character inhabits two characters, Sapasat and McMahon. And then in the unnameable, there is a complete breakdown where character isn't really there at all, or not in any usually definable way. Mahud and Basil are all strange fragments of this one unnameable. There is a crumbling of character throughout the trilogy. Do you remember the quote about aging? It feels like a crumbling of traditional character narration. Quote, And what I saw was more like a crumbling, a frenzied collapsing of all that had always protected me from all I was condemned to be. I certainly see a crumbling of these characters. Overall thoughts, I thought it was a really great book that gets at the nature of what it is to be human, to age, to struggle with possessions and love, to have an impermanent memory which changes and can form new memories or misremember old memories. That loves objects, that loves arranging objects, that loves to put things into order. And I love the fact that it explores the nature of fatherhood and the human's obsession with categorization and systems. That sucking stone in the greatcoat scene was so hilarious. It's also a fascinating commentary on the reading process. How does one convey silence in a text? How does one convey solitude? I'd recommend it to anyone who's willing and open to think deeply about the nature of human life and how that can be articulated in fiction. I really like this novel and I'd definitely recommend it to a thoughtful friend. These are just some of the ideas that resonated with me and I'm sure you'll have your own standout ideas. I'd love to hear them and perhaps share them at the next episode so please write and let me know your thoughts. So a little bit about the author Samuel Beckett. He was an influential Irish novelist, a playwright and poet known for his bleak and absurdist works. Born in Dublin in 1906, Beckett spent much of his life traveling and living in various European cities, including Paris and Berlin. He studied modern languages at Trinity College Dublin before continuing his studies at the Sorbonne in Paris. Beckett's literary career began in the late 1920s with a series of poems and essays that were published in literary journals in Paris. In the 1930s, he began to write plays, including his first major work, Waiting for Godot, which premiered in Paris in 1953. The play, which features two characters waiting for a mysterious figure named Godot, defied traditional theatrical conventions and received both critical and popular acclaim. Beckett went on to write a number of other plays, including *Endgame* and *Crap's Last Tape*, which dealt with themes of isolation, despair, and the human condition. His work also included novels such as *Malloy*, *Malone Dies*, and *The Unnameable*, which were characterized by their intricate structure, fragmented narrative style, and bleak worldview. Throughout his career, Beckett was concerned with the search for meaning in a seemingly meaningless world and the limitations of language in conveying human experience. His works were often marked by a sense of futility and absurdity as characters struggle to communicate with one another and come to terms with their own mortality. Despite the bleakness of his work, Beckett's writing also exhibited a profound sense of humour and irony. His characters were often portrayed as lost and helpless, yet they continued to strive for meaning and connection in a world that seemed indifferent to their existence. In addition to his literary works, Beckett was also a talented translator and he translated a number of works into English, including the works of French writers such as Gustave Flaubert and Arthur Rimbaud. Beckett's influence on contemporary literature and theater cannot be overstated. His innovative approach to form and language paved the way for writers like Harold Pinter and Tom Stoppard, while his commitment to exploring the human condition in all its complexity continues to resonate with readers and audiences today. Samuel Beckett died in Paris in 1989 at the age of 83. His legacy lives on through his body of work, which continues to be studied and performed by scholars and theater companies around the world. Thank you very much, Samuel Beckett. I'd now like to talk a little bit about July's book, All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, published in 2030. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to chapter 15 on page 120. Now, I know nothing about the author, but I'm going to read the first page or two, give you my thoughts. Another sheep, mangled and bled out, her innards not yet crusting, and the vapours rising from her like a steamed pudding. Crows, their beaks shining, strutting and rasping, and when I waved my stick they flew to the trees and watched, flaring out their wings, singing, if you call it that. I shoved my boot in Dog's face to stop him from taking a string of her away with him as a souvenir, and he kept close by my side as I wheeled the carcass out of the field and down into the woolshed. I'd been up that morning before the light came through out there, talking to myself, telling the dog about the things that needed doing as the blackbirds in the hawthorn started up. Like a mad woman, listening to her own voice, the wind shoving it back down my throat and hooting over my open mouth like it had done every morning since I moved to the island. With the trees rattling in the copse and the sheep blowing out behind me, the same trees, the same wind and sheep. That made two deaths in a month. The rain started to come down and a sudden gust of wind flung sheep poo at the back of my neck so it stung. I pulled up my collar and shielded my eyes with my hand. Quee crow, cold, quee crow, cold. What are you laughing at? I shouted at the crows and lobbed a stone at them. I wiped my eyes with the back of my hand and breathed in and out heavily to get rid of the blood smell. The crows were silent. When I turned to look, five of them sat in a row on the same branch, eyeing me but not speaking. The wind blew my hair in my eyes. Very nice. So she is a sheep farmer of some kind, for some reason. She's out tending to a sheep that's been killed in some way. A very, very different reading experience to Beckett. It's quite straightforward in the narrative style compared to Beckett, certainly. I'll look forward to reading that. Thank you very much. So. Thank you very much for listening if you have any questions or comments I'd love to hear them so leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com and if you want to recommend a future book to read together do let me know also if you enjoyed this please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app thank you very much I look forward to discussing the first half of all the birds singing by Hugh Wild at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of July that's the 14th see you then